Start. <laughs> Are you not entertained? Get busy living, or get busy dying. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Welcome to, actually, not only Taboo Talk with Jay Louder, but part two with our dear friend, PJ. PJ, good to have you back again. It's great to be back. Thanks, Jay. I so enjoyed uh, part one of the podcast that we did. Matter of fact, when we finished the podcast, I was talking to several staff members here at the office. I can't wait for them to hear it. I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. And matter of fact, of course, you met my wife when we came to El Dorado. El Dorado, I'm always saying it incorrectly, forgive me. Mm-hmm. And my <laughs> wife, of course, met you and just loved you the way we all did. And we were telling my wife, Sharonda and I were telling my wife about part of your story. And my wife was like, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I would have never <laughs> dreamed having met her. I mentioned this, I know, on part one, but... It's just another example of my wife going, you know, you meet her and she's so beautiful and she's so sweet and she has such a great personality. There's just an incandescence about her and you would never believe. My wife was shocked. She can't wait to hear. She's going to wait and listen to one and two together. But anyway, we're glad to have you back. Yesterday, we kind of ended on where there had been a little bit of a transition and you had mm-hmm. gotten older. And you were going to go to college and it seemed as though we're turning a page. You're no longer in the foster care system. You're no longer being pinballed from one house to the next. And so even though it seemed like that, we actually haven't gotten out of the woods yet. And so today on part two, I want to pick up really right, right where we left off. And so, um, you were in that transition phase of, of, of wanting to get into college. And so just begin to take us from there, PJ. Sure. I really wanted to reiterate that I have been adopted along with my three biological sisters. And we were reared by a beautiful couple who Midland, I believe, did all that they knew to do. We were in a mill town, which is about 12 miles away from El Dorado, And so many times we called coming to El Dorado, coming to town to buy groceries and pay bills and things of that nature. However, I didn't want to be there because that summer that I graduated high school, I attempted like almost every teenager in that community to go to the mill and work. And believe it or not, this little bitty girl, you know, here I was lifting wood off of a saw and in this 100 plus degree weather in this metal building. And I knew that my desire was to be a teacher. School had always been a place of structure and security for me. And I knew the only way that I could be a teacher was that I had to attend college. Keep in mind, I also mentioned that I had been an average student all throughout high school. And so I didn't have any scholarship offers. I wasn't even an honor graduate. However, my pastor at the time, he had a sister-in-law that worked at a community college about 40 miles from where we live, and they offered me a scholarship just because I was a minority student looking to go into education. I didn't even fill out an application for this scholarship. It just came out of nowhere, and there was my opportunity to attend college. And I was so grateful and thankful, and 
I didn't know at that time, but that was just one of the many things that would be like a domino effect where God would begin to just show me these glimpses of, hey, I'm here. I've got you. There are so many opportunities coming your way. And I'd love to say that I took full advantage of that scholarship. In many ways, I did. I went to college, knew that that was such a great blessing that I never had below a 4.0 GPA the entire time I was in college. But along with college and freedom from a very strict family that I had acquired through adoption, I began to excuse me, experiment with some things that obviously I should not have and even found myself dealing with some pathology, things that I know now came from even my biological parents. I fell into alcoholism almost immediately by hanging out with friends, going to clubs, dancing all night, but yet showing up every day to class. And I really picked up these bad habits that I had never had. I had never really been introduced to in my childhood other than those early, early years, which I didn't have great memory of. And I started battling things that I didn't even understand why I wanted to do it, but I was doing it. And I had this sense of freedom that I really started to take advantage of in not so much of the best ways. So that's how college started. Right. Well, and let me just say, for those of you, I hope if you have started listening to part two and you have not listened to part one, I'm going to tell you, stop right now. Don't listen anymore because you really want to catch in order to get the full caveat of this story and to get the full buffet, you really need to go back to the the very first episode on this because this story honestly is one of the most incredible stories that I've ever heard. And so, and, and I would assume PJ that when you talk about this new exposure that you had, now that you have gotten some freedom, you're no longer underneath the thumb of some of the foster families that you lived under, you're experimenting. Really, this is a common story. We hear this regularly with kids who maybe lived a, not to say that you lived a sheltered life because that wouldn't be accurate, but you do hear that of different kids that once they get out of maybe the oversight of their family or friends, there's a new temptation to maybe experiment with things that previously they've not experimented with. And that sounds like that's what was going on with you as you entered into college. You mentioned addiction, and I think the list goes on from there, does it not? Absolutely. Anything from addiction, um, mostly alcohol, which, again, I didn't realize that high tolerance for alcohol consumption was hereditary. I also began to be promiscuous and really made a lot of decisions, even if that means riding in the car with friends in the middle of the morning coming from a party or a club where we had just hung out and had a good time, no seat belts, packed in the vehicle, more people than there were seats. Um, I really found myself just spiraling down in my way of living, although I was doing fine as a student. And I was very confused and wasn't sure of how long I could keep that up and really found not too long from then a a better group of people to hang with and finish my two-year degree before I was again offered a scholarship to go to a four-year university to complete my teaching degree. And I have to say, that was just another opportunity that someone literally said, hey, you're such a great student. We know you want to be a teacher. This will get you over to the university from this technical school. Would you like to accept? And again, I was oblivious to the fact that God's given me these opportunities. And I said yes. And 
you know, I have to mention that during that time, I believe I was doing a lot of the poor behavior and making all those poor decisions, including uh, some credit card, credit card fraud that I got into because I was angry and I was saying, well, no one's helping. My adoptive parents had never been to college. I was the first of my sisters to go to college and I had very little support. I had my best friend of many years who would send me little care packages. One of my sisters would send me a care package here and there, but I was like, the struggle was real in college. And so I found myself angry and maybe even finding things to do to just get through it without people knowing just how hungry I was on some days or just how much I needed simple toiletries. And I think that I give myself a little more grace now realizing that I had a lot going on and I was trying to figure things out that no one in my life had ever done before. So I didn't have a pattern to follow like so many other kids that I encountered in college. But I'm just so thankful for the grace of God getting me through all of that and me finally getting to the four-year university where I began to turn things around significantly. You know, what's amazing to me, PJ, and I'm sure you didn't recognize it at the time, and I can tell you didn't just by the statements that you've made, but even though you were out in left, totally loud in left field, I don't know if you were left field, you probably had left the stadium at this point, but even though Mm -hmm. you you were out in left field, you probably didn't realize that these opportunities that you had in college were coming from the Lord. Am am I right about that? Mm. You are so right. I had no idea. Yeah, and what's beautiful to me about this, and I think some listeners may have a quandary with it. They may go, well, why would God be blessing PJ with her living the life that she was living? But what some believers don't realize is that God is a God of mercy and grace. It's not that God is, it's not that God is giving a permission slip when we do wrong, but because he is such a God of love and mercy, there are seasons in our life when God blesses us in spite of our own selves. And the truth of it is, any blessing that God brings is not because we deserved it. It's because of his goodness Mm. and not ours. Would you agree with that? I would say a hearty amen to that. And despite all the distractions, the peer pressure, all of the mistakes that I made that I will not make excuses for this far down the road, it was totally his grace and mercy. I just love that about the Lord. You know, if he gave us all what we deserved, because, again, I think some people that's going to bother them, but they're going to have to get over it because the truth of it is, PJ, if we all got what we really deserved, then all of us would be in hell. And we often even ask the question, well, why does bad things happen to good people? But the truth of it is none of us are good apart from Christ. And so Mm -hmm. I see it as, yeah, you were doing wrong. You admitted you were doing wrong. You're not in any way trying to justify what you did, but God still knew what his ultimate plan was for your life. He knew what he was ultimately going to do with you, and he was still providing measures of grace in spite of where you were. Absolutely. Okay, so you're in college, and as you said, there's an alcohol addiction, there's credit card fraud. I mean, I don't know what part of your story really. <laughs> you, you have everything. I mean, you are the one guest we've had that literally you've had about everything in your story. You're getting involved in promiscuity. I think there was even one point in your book you talked about even an abortion. Is that correct, or, or am I misreading that? No, that is correct. I, I was just about to say, as soon as I would come out of something, I would seem to do really well. It was almost like a roller coaster. I would do well for a while. And so as I shifted to that four-year university, 
I was on a high again and I was doing well again. I got involved in a gospel choir, which significantly changed the trajectory of my young adult life to be a part of this choir on campus. And I met so many great people right there where things were well. And I was being reintroduced to this introduction of Christ by myself, not with mom and dad taking us to church or having us do this or do that. I fell into this relationship where, you know, there was, there was a lot of emotions and, and feelings involved. And I did become pregnant and was not expecting it. And he was not expecting it. And before I knew it, we were in a car and traveling two hours away, obviously thinking we would avoid people in the, the area knowing we were making a decision that we couldn't bring this child into the world. And when I tell you, I never could have imagined that would be something that I would have faced. I, I still you know, grapple with that even this many years later. Did that even happen? How did that happen? But then it's so vividly in my memory the day that I spent there with this young man and the decision we made, I'm so grateful that, you know, God doesn't hold things against us. As you said before, you're right. It's all there in my story. And I still have to talk to people and take a pause when I'm sharing the story and many times get the book out and which it took me years to write because I put all my journals together like a puzzle and to find these pieces and put them side by side, I, I cannot believe how good God has been to me in spite of all the things that I didn't do well. I'd be curious, PJ, what was it that led you, because your life did not represent a person who was singing in the church choir, what was the springboard mm. that led you to getting involved in that? I've always been a, a person who loved music. I didn't know that until I was about six. After we had been adopted, we were attending a church on a regular basis, we were, I think, automatically put into the youth choir. And out of nowhere, I discovered I had this talent of singing. As a matter of fact, at my high school, I was the homecoming entertainment for six or seven years straight. I sang to the queen in her court for all those years. And so when I got to college, this four-year university, and realized there was an opportunity to sing, and it was gospel, it took me back to my roots. I was so excited to join that gospel choir. Had a few friends who were already involved, and it just seemed like a good group of kids to be around. I see. Yeah, that's amazing. That, but it makes sense too when you when you look at your background. And you probably wouldn't even mention this, PJ. I'm not surprised because again, I've seen you, and I just you're a beautiful lady inside and out. But you also were weren't you a beauty queen or participated in pageants as well? Isn't that correct? I always kindly will correct people. I was never a beauty queen. I was a scholarship queen, <laughs> but thank you for your kind comments. And so that happened by accident as well. I was on campus singing in that gospel choir and a fraternity realized that I had this gift of singing. And they literally approached me one day on campus and said, Hey, we have this pageant that we wonder if you will represent us in. I had never been in a pageant except for one time in high school. And it was really a joke with a friend that we even entered that pageant. And so there on the college campus, I go to this state pageant on behalf of this fraternity. And I received a dress. I did my talent, did all this stuff. And I ended up being the runner up. 
when I come back to college, they have the posters out for the Miss Southern Arkansas University pageant, which is a scholarship pageant, which will take care of some college tuition. And I see this, I think the guy's already bought me a dress and I already know I have a talent. I'm sure I can interview because I love to talk. I might try this. I enter my first pageant, which I had no idea was a preliminary for Miss Arkansas, which is a preliminary for Miss America. So I'm entering this pageant with young ladies who've always wanted to be Miss America, and they were actually seeking out these preliminary pageants. And here I am, a first-timer, on this level, and I win the pageant. (laughs) And it was just like something that I still get tickled about, as you can tell, because here I am, a newbie, someone who's never been on the stage, and these two girls who are my first and second runner-up are looking at me like, how in the world did you come in here and beat us? Because we've been training for this all of our lives. And long story short, I became the first African-American in the history of that university to hold the title of Mrs. Southern Arkansas University. I went on to the Miss Arkansas pageant. I did not win the pageant. However, I was awarded the Best Timer Award that year in 1999. That's how I became a scholarship pageant participant not a beauty queen jay you can call it what you want to call it i'm going to call it a beauty queen so we'll leave we'll leave it at that i think my husband larry would agree with you and that's when we started kind of dating and hanging out so i think he would agree with you well you know that's really a good transition let's just go there how did you meet your husband larry and when you met larry was this at a phase in your life where you had came back to the Lord, or when you met Larry, were you still away from the Lord? So tell us kind of that and how y'all met. I came back to the Lord during that period, and it was like he kept throwing these bricks at me, and I the bricks of blessings. And so the pageant was just one more of those. And I can remember we were doing a lot of singing in the gospel choir that we were a part of. My husband, Larry, had previously been a member of that choir. However, he was no longer a student at the university. He would just come in from time to time and continue to play music for the choir. His brother was also a musician. And the story goes, his brother told him, you need to meet this loud, crunk girl. Now, crunk is an old term, but that's what, the, that's what my, my husband's brother said. And he came to campus. And really the rest is history. We met through the choir for a long time. You won't believe it, Jay. And I can't wait for Larry to hear me say it yet again. He was not interested in me. However, I was interested in him almost immediately. As a lady, I didn't really give him a lot of clues, but I gave him enough clues. And the choir began to notice that both of us had an interest in each other. And they tried to kind of create some opportunities for us to be together and to ride in the same car when we were going to different events to sing. And finally, he asked me out on a date. And we both tell everyone that on that first date, we return to our places where we were living or talking to friends and said we would be married. And sure enough, it came true less than uh, a year later. We were We dated for eight months, and then we were engaged, and we married within the next year. So it was a very uh, quick, quick love. I tell people, first comes love, then comes marriage. 
And then, you know, the rest of that story, it's a baby carriage came the first year of our marriage. So we were we were just in love almost from the beginning of meeting each other. So I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. You talked about at this point in your life, you had, you'd come back to the Lord. What was what led to that? Was it just by being in the choir and being in church and being around spiritual things that you realized that you had just drifted so far away or was there some cataclysmic moment that was a part of that turnaround where you came back to the Lord? I have to say that a lot of the credit does go to being involved in the gospel choir. In addition to us singing and meeting weekly, we also had Tuesday night services on our campus and we called it freedom rain. I'll never forget the name of those services. There were, a number of pastors, evangelists, and even student representatives who would speak to us and tell us about how we could continue to strengthen our relationship with Christ. And I think that after the abortion, I think that after realizing here I am in my last couple of years of college, and I've got to get myself lined out and straightened out, and there was no way I could do it on my own because, again, I had been on this roller coaster for so many years. I was ready and willing to submit and surrender to God. And so being around the choir, again, meeting Larry and so many other great people during that time really gave me the shift that I needed in my life to fully commit to Christ. So when you met Larry, was Larry at this, I mean, because we know, and everybody that's listened to part one knows that your husband is a pastor. Was Larry at this time walking with the Lord? Was he on track or was he also out in left field when you met him? And also part two of that question would be, did you know that he was going to be a pastor? (laughs) Okay. So he was very much already on track and a minister, an ordained minister serving under his father, who was his pastor for many years. And really a light for me in a very dark time where that I was coming out of, I believe God used him tremendously to show me the love of God, to encourage me, to send me scriptures. This is before cell phones. This is before we were able to text. And so he would write me letters, which I still have, that would include scriptures and, and different references that I would need to go back to, to be strengthened as I'm taking on this journey of getting closer to Christ. And so he was there already. And it is a hard no. I did not think that he would be a pastor. Again, he was serving under his father, who later became my pastor as well. And I never thought about him being a pastor at that time. And you probably never thought that you would be a pastor's wife either, did you? Absolutely not. We are from, (laughs) (laughs) we are from polar opposite worlds. And we have talked about that now for 17 years, him pastoring. And we realized that God was strategic and he orchestrated that as well. Me coming from the background that we've talked about in episode one and this episode two, and then him coming from a a life of having mom and dad both being saved at very early ages and introducing him to Christ as a child. We just came from two different worlds, but now we're able to minister to people from both worlds. And so we're so thankful for that. Yeah, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way because this is a compliment uh, to Larry, and I certainly don't mean it as a dig at you. But yesterday when I was talking with staff, and especially my my wife was overhearing uh, me kind of giving the Reader's Digest of Part 1, 
I was telling my wife, because she's met your husband as well. And I said to my wife, I said, and we're going to get into a little bit of that today. But once you and Larry got together, it's not like Larry was was marrying this woman that wasn't carrying some baggage into the marriage. And even some of the things that you told me on the phone call after part one about some of the struggles that continued to exist, I told my wife, I said, Larry's a great guy himself because there's a lot of people that would have said, you know what, I did not know what I was getting involved in. I, I sincerely doubt that Larry could have known all the, the different hangups that you might have carried into the marriage. And it says a lot about Larry as well. And again, I hope that doesn't come across the wrong way. It does not come across the wrong way. And it's, it's not often these days that I get theory eyed when I'm talking about any of my journey, but that part will always be the soft part in my heart. And Larry oftentimes tells people that, you know, he's been through it all with me and I don't take that lightly. And I want you to know that what you said doesn't even do it justice. I have this saying that I say to him at home and I say in public as well, that's a good man. He is a good man through and through. And that goes beyond him paying the bills, being a husband, being an amazing father, being a faithful, loving, compassionate pastor. He's a good man. He is just such an amazing individual. And I did bring a lot of baggage that he helped me carry. And, you know, as we transitioned into what it looked like after we married, that becomes much more clear. Yeah. And truly, yesterday, I said the same thing. I said, Larry, you know, obviously, again, don't know him that well, but I've certainly met him and talked to him and I hit it off with him as well. But I said that same thing. I said, not only is Larry obviously a really good man, I said, there's something else. He must really love PJ. So that that's a good segue, excuse me, into the next thing. So you and Larry get married. You mm-hmm. didn't think you would ever marry a, a pastor. You never thought you'd be a pastor's wife. So now everything's perfect, right? So you marry Larry and there's no more problems <laughs> and you guys are in ministry and life is just a breeze. No, that's not what happened. Tell us about that. That is not what happened, and I am so grateful for you to put it just like that. I didn't ask for any of this, and neither did he. We all know that God's plan is what we have to always go back to. I know that in Born a Statistic, my first book, I have a chapter that I entitled Momentous Occasions. And so right after Larry and I meet, like I said, we we fall in love and we get married so quickly. We met in 99. We married in 2000. And so it was quick. And it was a beautiful, beautiful love story from the beginning. And the pivotal moment that neither one of us expected was when we did get to our one year anniversary, or just the, like just the right before it, I found out that I was pregnant. And I had our first son in 2001. So this is really a fast go and train. And I believe that when I had my oldest son in 2001, he's Larry D. Jr. So we call him LJ. My life completely changed again. And so we're talking 24 months of significant change. Um, I've graduated college. I'm teaching school, lifelong dream. I'm married, something I never thought would happen. I've had a baby, truly something I never wanted. And so now I have a baby. I'm absolutely in love, but I'm afraid. The fear sets in here when I'm looking at LJ and I'm trying to figure out, can I be his mother? 
Do I have what it takes? Am I equipped? I didn't feel as if I had the examples of mothering that I needed to give him what he deserved. And that's when depression, mostly postpartum to begin with, sat in. And I can remember looking at him so many times and asking that little sweet face, what am I going to do with you? I don't even know what to do with you. And I felt like every move that I made was being questioned, although that was in my mind. No one was really questioning me. It was just me questioning myself. I was estranged from some of my family and had help here and there. But postpartum, which is very real, as science proves, set in and I found myself in a deep, dark hole again, wondering, what am I going to do? That led to me, when he was six months old, having a mental breakdown. And there's a, there's a lot missing there that I honestly can tell you I've had to go back to Larry and say, what happened? What were my behaviors? Was I going to work every day? Was I taking care of him? Who was around? Did anyone notice I was in this sinking hole? And long story short, on a Sunday afternoon after leaving church, I lost it. I literally went out of my mind and found myself by the time the next morning came, somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, the next Monday, I was actually admitted into a psych ward at a behavioral health unit, which we in the South many times called the mental hospital. And that was just the most jarring thing that ever could have happened to me, especially leaving my husband and my six-month-old baby behind. And not only, let's be real here, not only the just the absolute shock of leaving your newborn and your husband behind, you are the first lady, you are the pastor's wife at a church. And you and I both know that many people incorrectly believe that those of us in ministry, we've got it all together and we can't afford to show any chinks in our armor. And so I would assume that played another role in it as well. Of what are all the church people going to think? Because regrettably, sometimes they're the most judgmental people on the planet. You're so right. And I do want to say that at that time, my husband and I were still serving under his, under his father's ministry, but we were super active. So my husband was like a lead musician. He was the youth pastor. I was teaching Sunday school and singing every Sunday in the choir. We were very involved in ministry, although he wasn't pastoring yet. You're right. I was scared out of my mind about what will the church people say? So much so that to my knowledge, no one was even aware with the exception of my husband's parents and one colleague at work. I didn't share with my best friend. I didn't share with my sisters. I didn't share with anyone that I was hospitalized. And it makes me think of Sean Johnson, the pastor who wrote Attacking Anxiety from Panicked and Depressed uh -huh. to Alive and Free. He talks about it. And he was a pastor when it happened. And I'm not going to say that we might as well have been, but because we were so ingrained in ministry and I'm married to the pastor's son, this should have never happened to me is the way that I know that many people have viewed it. 
Did you willingly go to the mental hospital? And also, was there a degree of embarrassment, or were you just so mentally checked out that you wanted to go, and, and there was also a side that it didn't even matter, I just got to get help? Or was it more something that Larry imposed and said, hey, we got to do something? I think it was a combination of all of it. After I had a pretty serious episode, ended up in our local hospital, I was given some some choices. I was given some options. Either you go and you get admitted somewhere, or we put you up there in a in a. I, I think they even said in a in a jacket. You know, we're going we're going to lock you down right. because you're you're talking out of your mind. You could harm yourself. And and I have to say that prior to this, which has not come up in our conversation, I had some suicide attempts beginning at 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And so I'm now looking at my third, fourth attempt here. And so they're like, we can't let you hurt yourself. We, we have to put you in a straitjacket. You have to go somewhere. What are you going to do? And they give me these hospitals. They give me the name of the hospitals. They give me which cities they're in. And my husband's saying, you, you, need to, you need to go get some help. And, of course, he's devastated having to give me those words. But it was what was best. And that's how I made the decision. And I did go willingly. I can't say that it was fun, but I did go willingly. Right. And let me just say to our listeners, if you're listening to this and you think, oh, postpartum depression, get over it, pray over it, you know, you'll, it's no big deal. Let me tell you something. I personally have seen this as well, and and I won't give the whole story, but I'll narrow it down to this. PJ, after my wife gave birth to our third child, and my wife has always been very stable. My wife is kind of a shy. You've met her. She's a very Mm -hmm. laid-back person. She's not type A like me. She's not intense like me. And I noticed my wife was not the same person, and I didn't know what postpartum was, never heard of it. And I just knew something was wrong, that she wasn't the same person. And it didn't make sense to me because here we have a, you know, a brand new child we should be excited about. And I came mm-hmm. home from work one day, and when I walked in, one of the children had spilled a glass of milk on the hardwood floors. And you've probably heard the saying, you don't cry over spilled milk. It's common vernacular here in the South. And right. When I walked in, my wife was on her hands and knees with a towel, cleaning up spilled milk and bawling as if somebody had just burned our house down. And Mm -hmm. even though Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going on, I knew something was way off. And I knew that it was time to get help. So, so here, and how long were you in the mental institution, PJ? For that particular time, I was there a solid week. And I was about an hour and a half away from home. My husband would drive that distance. Well, you know, that was a one-way trip to see me one hour each day. Of course, I didn't get to see my baby during that time. And the postpartum that we know kind of kicked off things later led to a diagnosis of bipolar depression. Lots of medication and lots of therapy while I was there for that full week. And then my outpatient care continued for a number of years here in my home city. If we had Larry on the podcast today, PJ, and just being transparent here, was there ever a point when Larry said, because again, yesterday when I was talking with staff and I said, you know, Larry, man, he's, he's a great guy. And when I made the comment, I, a lot of men, they would have walked out there. There's too much here. Was there a mm-hmm. point that Larry said, 
maybe it's time for me to throw in the towel. I mean, my wife is mentally unstable. She's not here. Or, or did he just press on through the whole thing? From what I can tell and what I know of, he pressed on and pressed on and pressed on. I can tell you that I'm, I'm human, right? And so I know there had to be time that he felt like, will this ever end? Will she be okay? Should I stay? Are my child and I safe in this, in this circumstance? I can recall how fragile he treated me when we returned home and how he would make sure I was okay. He would, he would just seem to just almost treat me as if I was, you know, not in a, not in a demeaning way. Like I was just this precious thing that he needed to look over and take such sweet, sweet care of. And then there were other days where he would, he would be unfortunately more or less in an authoritative father-like role saying, have you taken your medicine? Which, you know, I had to be honest sometimes and say, what do you mean? Have I taken my medicine? No, I haven't taken it. You don't know how that stuff makes you feel, but he never made me feel like I was in this alone. And he certainly never gave me any indication that he was going to leave and abandon me. I am so forever grateful and thankful for him being there to comfort me, to love me, and to, again, show me that love and compassion that God so many times shows us through people. And, and I can't say enough about his, his transparency, even now, when people want me to tell my testimony and invite me to share about mental health, how it's hard for him, he tells me, to, to still hear about those times. Because I think he still needs the opportunity to be able to articulate just what it was like to be the, on the other side of the coin. Let me say something to the ladies right here, right now. I know that you don't know Larry or PJ, but let me say something to you ladies. Find someone who loves you like Larry loved PJ. I mean, you want to talk about Amen. for better or for worse? You want to mm-hmm. talk about a covenant? I mean, man, he's the epitome of that because I, I'm just telling you, I, I, I've, I've been in ministry a long time, and I've seen a lot of men that have walked out for a lot less than this. I can tell you that. And men that, that were strong believers as well. You mentioned, PJ, that there were a lot of medications. Was there some side effects of some of these psychotic drugs, I mean, that, that really had negative impact on you? Oh, gosh, yes. There were so many different concoctions that we tried while I was in the hospital and after and, and some of that was my fault because I would not commit to what they had given me. So they might say, this is your regimen. And I would try it, but it would make me feel a certain way. So I would stop it. Then I would get called on it and try it back again. And so there were times where I felt very impulsive. I would, I would just begin to do things and say things and even sometimes talk out loud. Or, or I remember very clearly counting out loud and I don't even know what I was counting. I was just always counting in my head. I can't still can't describe that. I would become sometimes antisocial. I would also many times have loss of appetite. I got down to a really, really low weight. I struggled with forgetfulness. And for those who know me and know me very well, I am detail oriented. I make lists. I'm organized. I know where everything is. You ask me and I can go straight to it. But I was losing anything from the baby shoes to things in my classroom. And and I just 
never even discovered some of the things that I lost during that period. And so I talk about how we need to use the medication as it's prescribed, and we need to communicate with our physicians if we need to about, you know, this is not making me feel like I think I should be feeling. And I can tell you that I took one to wake up. I took one to stay awake during the day, and I took another one to go to bed, and a few in between throughout those years of taking psychotic drugs. And I I tell people it was outrageous the amount of symptoms that I had to go through before I finally found a regimen that worked for me and that I was able to commit to before I was able to approach my doctor and say, you know, I think I'm finally there and I'd like to start coming off of this medication. Do you, and you don't have to answer this question, do you still take medication? Because my wife still does. And and I've heard people say, well, if you just had greater faith, if you just trusted God more, I think that's the most ludicrous statement ever. I believe that God mm-hmm. has provided that medication for my wife. I'm glad she's able to take it. And I don't have any problem with it. And I don't have any problem with medication, although I have been medication-free now for about 10 years, actually a little bit longer. I went through a process though. I went to my doctor and I told him that I seem to be doing so much better. I had to tell him that Larry agreed. And then we all worked together on a plan to wean me off of the medication. Now what that involves still to this day is a daily commitment to make the choice to do all the things that are necessary to stay mentally well. And although I'm not on medication, there are times that I have therapy. There are times that I go through my laundry list of coping skills that have made a significant difference. And I'll tell you, if there ever comes a time where I would be in need of medication again, I would not be opposed to it. And I oftentimes tell people, yes, God gave physicians the knowledge to help us be better. So do what they are telling you if they are saying you need to take medication. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. PJ, how long was it? How long was this uh, time frame where there was this mental instability where you were having to take all these? How long was that process before you really got mentally stable again? I would say that that process went on for about 12 to 13 years. And so for the time my son was six months old, all the way until he was about 12 or 13, I really had a lot of work to do. And when I say work, I mean very, very rigorous work to pull myself out of that place because I don't know if I mentioned it before, but I know at least one of my biological parents suffered from mental illness until he he passed away, my father. And he was a Vietnam vet, and that had a lot to do with it. And he was on medication, and he also had some addiction issues that did not help the situation. But I knew I had the propensity to deal with this all my life. And I do feel like I'm still in many ways being healed of it because I have the days where I tell my husband, you know, I can choose if I'd like to stay in bed today or, or, or be down today or not want to deal with people today because I, I, I know that might be what I want to do, but it's not what I need to do. And so after those, 12, 13 years of really doing the hard work, I can say that for the last 10 years, I have been significantly different. Well, 
it's it's just amazing, honestly. And I mentioned this on part one. I'm going to mention it again because, again, just if I wish people could be around you because, again, this was reiterated yesterday. My wife's like, gosh, just being around her, she's so positive. She's so happy. Her, She has got a sweetness about her, a gentleness about her. I mean, it's for people that have met you, you would never in a million – PJ is the last person that you would have ever thought has dealt with all the issues that she's dealt with. So you now let's kind of fast forward a little bit here. Now your husband is a pastor at a church and Mm -hmm. you are now the first lady of the church. You're you're, Mm -hmm. you're doing well mentally, but yet I know that you mentioned in your book that Somehow, the church and religion, church and religion, had caused you to lose sight of yourself. Explain that. Oh wow! So yes, I was doing so much better mentally, and then I feel like I entered, or should I say, re-entered this life of rejection because I've always been a little different. Even as a young girl, I I didn't dress like all the other girls. I liked eccentric, interesting clothing. I don't own many pieces of clothing that are not full of patterns and sequins and whatever you can come up with that makes me different. And when I entered into being the pastor's wife in our culture, many call the first lady of the church, I found that there were so many people who wanted me to be maybe who the last pastor's wife was, or they wanted me to be whatever version of the pastor's wife that they thought would best fit their church. And I found myself being told many times that I needed to change my appearance, that I needed to dress a certain way, that my hair should be like this and my fingernails should not be this color. And there were just all these things that I call many times just religious beliefs and thoughts not necessarily things I can find in the Word of God, that began to really beat me down in my self-esteem and made me feel like, okay, he's a pastor. They like him. They're accepting him. He seems to be well-adjusted, but I can't seem to please anybody. There were some who told me that I needed to not wear pants, and there were others that were like, well, you can wear pants, but, you know, just just not here at church. And I was just so confused with all of the rules and the regulations. And I didn't feel like it was a great representation of me doing what I thought was important, which was pleasing God. So I learned that you can't expect more from people, you know, who who don't really have a deep relationship with God. They have a relationship with their religion. Wow. What a statement. It reminds me a verse I memorized years ago. I, I'm hope I'm quoting it right because I'm doing this from my memory bank. But I think it's First Samuel sixteen seven, which says that the while man looks at the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, yeah. and that's regrettably that often does happen in church settings where people want to impose upon you what their convictions are or their beliefs that are not technically scripturally based. It's very pharisaical. It's what the religious leaders did in Jesus' day. They had all these rules and regulations that they came up with on their own that they wanted to impose on other people. And that's what it sounds like was happening with you as well. Absolutely. I agree. Wow. And so how did you deal with that? Here you are, the pastor's wife, 
And uh, there's, <laughs> you've got to be disenchanted a little bit. You never wanted to be a pastor's wife to begin with, and here you are. And no matter what you do, somebody's always unhappy about it. How did you navigate that? The only thing that I found that would really work is something that I'm really good at. After experiencing the love of God so many times and, and through so many great individuals that he has just plopped down right in the middle of my mess over and over again, I knew how to love people. And so I started just trying to minister to the needs of the people. Whether they were kind to me or not, I showed them love. And I just asked God to to really take me into a place where I would see him and what he wanted me to do and not people. I got over this whole thing of hiding behind my church face and I began to love people. And it's oftentimes been said by my husband and others who visit our ministry. He's the preacher. He's the pastor. He is the, the shepherd of the sheep. But God has really called me to love people. And so it's hard to love people and also like focus on things like those that I was describing a few moments ago. You can only do one or the other. And so regardless of what I was going through or how I was feeling, I just covered it all up with love. And the Bible does say that love covers a multitude of faults. And I have to say that I was loving people. And then I found that there were many and there are many who began to do the same thing for me. Just show me a lot of love. But I have to tell you, just knowing my own personality and my, my history with becoming angry and really having to, to work through my own emotions, I did just have to learn how to silence my flesh and allow God to, to just show me his word and how I should properly deal with his people. Yeah, and being just, again, transparent here, like you, I've been in ministry for a long time. And mm -hmm. sometimes, I've said it before and I'll say it again, and some people may not want to hear it, but the best people I've ever known have been in church and the worst people I've ever known have been in church. And mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. It's true. And and sometimes the most judgment, I've said it before, when I was unsaved, I used to hang out at a bar every night called the Rock Inn. And uh, I mean, obviously I wasn't a believer and neither were, the, neither were the people that I hung with. And they were the most friendly, nice people. It didn't matter what I did wrong or how wasted I was or how jacked up my life was. It was, hey, Jay, how you doing? Always compliment me. If I had a bad day, come over and put a arm around your shoulder and try to pick you up. And then I got saved and thought, man, I can't wait to be around all these Christian people. They're going to be so encouraging and man, stand beside you. And I found out real quick that sometimes the people at the bar were a whole lot friendlier than the people in the church were. And I know you've seen that. I know you've seen that. Yes, I have. And I always hear my husband say, people treat us how to be or how not to be. And so I'm just striving not to be one of those church people that's viewed in that way. Yeah, you and me both. You and me both. <laughs> PJ, tell us now. I mean, you know, again, your story literally has everything. I mean, it's just amazing all that you fought. And I know it would be really, we could do about five podcasts with you because there's so many different things that we just <laughs> brushed over for time's sake. By the sure. time these two podcasts are done, we will have been about almost an hour on each one, which is really even a little bit longer than what we normally do, but it's all there. there there's addiction, there's rejection. Uh, there is racism. Uh, there, there's mental health. I, I don't know what's not in your story, Tell us what mm -hmm. you're doing now. Again, one of the common denominators of people that we have on this podcast are not only people that have had struggles and issues and difficulties, 
but people that rather than allowing themselves to just be a victim, and certainly if anybody has a right to be, it would have been you, but rather than just being a victim, they are using their pain as a platform, and they have taken all their adversities and their challenges, and they have used them to help other people, to build God's kingdom, to strengthen their own faith and the faith of others. Tell folks what you're doing. I know you mentioned some of that in the context of these two podcasts, but tell us how you're using all these things, PJ. And and then when you get down there, remind folks how they can get in touch with you. Absolutely. So that's a loaded question, but I'll tell you that it's a day-to-day journey, and it starts every day with just gratefulness. I'm really still as shocked as most people are that I've had the life I've had and that this is where I'm I am in the journey. In in the first book that I wrote, Born a Statistic, it has a subtitle, Living Rejected, Agreeing with God. And so in many ways, I'm still living rejected from parents and different people in my life. But the key to the entire process to overcome being born a statistic has been agreeing with God. I've agreed with the plan that he had for my life before I was even in my mother's womb. And that has really been something that I continue to use on a daily basis. Okay, God, is this what you're, this is what you're wanting? Okay, you're you're in control. I can't fight that. And I agree with him for whatever happens or whatever doesn't happen. In addition to that, I try to live a very purposeful life, which is filled with things that I know will bring glory to God. And so I I stay very close to taking care of myself first. I know that without taking care of myself spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, I won't be able to be any good as a wife and a mother, as a woman in my career, in the Christian community and at my local church and all the other things that I do to advocate and volunteer. I, I know that I have to take care of me. And after I take care of me, I'm very strategic and who I allow in the innermost parts of my life. And so I've heard people make this, this statement about my circle of friends became a dot, and they use that as a little cliche, but it really is pretty true for me. I have to stay close to the few people in my life that I know are good for me, and I have to say that sometimes the people who I would like to be good for me aren't. So I, again, agree with, agree with God and, and realize I can't have those relationships even if it is a biological connection that I know should be there and that would be normal. If it's not good for me, I I really keep the right people close. And then also in my purposeful living, I try to find a way to help others who are either trying to avoid some of the things I've talked about or who are right in the thick of it. And I do that many times by having clients who have allowed me to be their Christian life coach, but there are other times I do that in passing, or I do that when I'm doing a motivational talk, or I'm invited to preach somewhere. I just share with people what God is able to do. And I feel like everything that I've encountered in my life, its purpose has been served. And that's why I wrote my second book, Life After the Struggle, Living in Freedom Everywhere After the Struggle. Just because You've heard all these things in these two episodes and all this stuff is outlined in the book that I wrote about my life. It doesn't mean that it was for bad. The Bible says that, you know, the devil meant it for bad, but God meant it for my good. And so it served its purpose. And now I'm living on purpose because of all the things 
that God has allowed me to come out of. And I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity to say that what could have, should have, and would have destroyed me actually made me who I am today. People can find me at com, and I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. I have to admit I'm not very good with social media, but I love to get contacted on my website anytime. Well, you know, the truth of it is, and one of, we kind of referenced this earlier about how even when other people were doing you wrong or inflicting mm-hmm. pain on you, or even when you were doing wrong, when it was, whether it was mm. credit card fraud or the other things, and in all of that, God still had his hand on your life and was still knew his purpose and was still going to use you to do what you're doing now and become who you are now. It reminds me of another verse I memorized years ago, and I believe it's Romans 2, 4. Again, this is from a memory bank, but it says, the goodness of God leads to repentance. And even when Absolutely. you were way out of the stadium, as we talked about earlier, when, when you'd left left field years before, and God was still opening up doors, providing opportunities, that his goodness is what led you to repentance of just his mercy and his love on you. And, uh, man, we adore you, PJ. We do. Tell folks, what is the name of your church there in El Dorado? Because if people are passing through that area, listen, you've got to stop at the church. You need to meet Larry. You need to meet PJ. The name of our church is Changing Lives Ministries Church here in El Dorado, Arkansas. We're at 1707 North College Avenue. And if you don't mind, PJ, would you, you gave your contact information, but I think some folks may have difficulty spelling your name. Could you spell that out so folks know how to contact you? Because I made a promise on the last podcast that anybody who wants your book, our ministry is under, going to underwrite that cost. I didn't even ask what the book costs, and I don't even care. But we are going to pay for anybody that wants a copy of this book, and we're going to pay for shipping and handling. All you've got to do is contact PJ, say, I listen to the podcast, I want the book, and we are going to cover the cost of that. If you, Could you spell out the, this contact? Because, again, some people may have difficulty spelling your name. It's not as simple as Jay Louder. Absolutely, and thank you for that generous uh, gift to all the people who take advantage of it. The website, again, is ChanelePJYarbrough.com. That's spelled S-H-A-N-E-I-L-P-J-Y-A-R-B-R-O-U-G-H.com. You can go to the contact form and just let me know that you heard the podcast and you would like to be a recipient of one of the books that J. Louder Ministries is gifting to you. And they can also follow you on Facebook. Is it the same thing? Is it Chanel or is it PJ? How do they find you on social media? It's Chanel PJ Yarbrough on Facebook and Instagram. That's all I can handle at this time. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. I, trust me, we do social media and goodness gracious, especially when I'm on the road, I can get back to my hotel and you would be surprised at the amount of folks that mm. you've got to respond to, but I love it. But PJ, honestly, sure. it has been such, it's an honor. No joke. It sounds so colloquial, but it, it is an honor seriously to know you and your husband to have met you guys. I know we talked before the podcast briefly. There's a chance that I may be able to come back next year or the following year to do another multiple church event there in El Dorado. I hope that works out, but we just adore you. We have, I have so much respect for you. You are such a case study of what God can do in someone's life. 
And and I've got to believe that there are people that are going to listen to these two podcasts and they have been through some stuff and they're going, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Is there any way that I can ever come out of this? Is there any way that God can somehow make a message out of this huge mess that I'm in? And you are living proof, PJ, that God can do it. It doesn't mean there wasn't consequences. It doesn't mean that it wasn't easy. It doesn't mean that there weren't some slip-ups and fallbacks. But what it does mean is that God has given the ultimate victory, and you are such a warrior and such a gift to God's kingdom and to those of us that know you. Thank you so much, Jay, for the opportunity. I hate to use yet another cliche, but I, I oftentimes say this from the depth of my heart, to God be the glory for everything that he has done, he is doing, and he will do in my life. I'm grateful to Jay Ladder Ministries for coming to El Dorado, for the opportunity to meet you guys and be a part of something that I truly believe will I will never experience to that degree again in my lifetime. But I also thank God for the, the podcast that I know will reach so many more people. And to all those questions you were asking about, is it anything that, that I can do that will will change what's going on in my life and can God really love me through this and through that? And to that I just say that I know in the Bible there are so many times that there's a scripture reference. Is there anything too hard for God? And the answer is no. And I do believe that I'm a I'm a witness to that and I'm so grateful for his love, his mercy and his kindness. PJ, you're amazing again. Such a joy, such a joy. I wish that you and your husband lived closer where we could see you. If you guys lived anywhere near us, we would be hanging out with you guys (laughs) 24-7. It would be great to see you guys again, and I know that's going to happen in the near future. Send my best to Larry, and we will talk soon. Next time, we'll catch you on Taboo Talk. Thank you. With Jay Louder. Are you not entertained? Get busy living or get busy dying. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us.